Brad, or if you guys would go ahead and you can hand out uh, some those cards to folks. We're Easter is six weeks from today. I'm bad at math, but I think that's correct. And uh, so, you know, we said one of the things that it's going to take for God really to renew us as a congregation is unusual energy for outreach. Do you think we have usual energy, unusual energy, not much energy? You know, I would say, you know, for most of us, we could do better, right, inviting others to worship with us. And so we're intentionally, deliberately asking that for the next uh, six weeks between now and Easter that you pray for six families or six friends. You might say, I don't have six friends, you know. Well, bless your heart, you know. I hope that gets better for you. But if you don't have six friends, pray, you know, pray for one friend or two friends. But, you know, uh, pray for your neighbors. It, it, we should be doing this anyway all the time. You know, it's the Great Commission. It's what God has called us to do. So I'm asking you if you would make a commitment between now and Easter to pray for six friends, six families, or however many uh, people God will put on your heart and invite them to come to church with you on Easter. I promise I won't preach on sex that day, okay? We'll, we'll talk about the resurrection. We'll uh, put a pause on 1 Corinthians for a little while. And uh, we'll, we'll talk about the fact that Jesus is gloriously raised and alive. But this is what God put this church here to do and be, is to reach out to others and to help them connect to the life that we've come to know and experience. So will you do that? Will you pray and uh, invite others? We can do that, right? For the next six weeks, six families, six friends, for six weeks, we're going to pray for them and invite them, each of us. So turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we are going to talk about sex again today. So it's what's in the text. This is one of the dangers, I guess, or needs when you preach verse by verse and you go through, uh, you know, the scripture this way, is we're going to sometimes encounter passages that take us into territory that may make us uncomfortable, but the world is talking about this in the wrong way. And so we want to try to learn to think about God's way and live out his ways in all of our life and, in, and including in, in these areas. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, we're going to finish this chapter this morning. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me. Now here's what you need to know. When he says this, all things are lawful for me, he's really quoting them. They have been saying, hey, we can do anything. We're under grace. All things are lawful for me. So he says, he's repeating that. Yes, all things are permissible for you, but is everything helpful for you? The answer is no. Not everything is beneficial. Not everything is helpful. But they're given, this is like an adage, a common phrase that was repeated among them that he's addressing. All things are lawful for me. I can do anything. I'm under grace. He's saying, yes, but not everything you could do is helpful for you. And he says, all things are lawful for me, but I won't be brought under the power of any. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods. Okay, he's quoting them again here. This is what they've been saying. Food for the stomach and the stomach for foods. In other words, the body was made for certain things. If it's made for that use, why not do it? That's what he's, he's addressing. This is their mentality that he's countering. 
You say this, that the body is made for food and the food, uh, the stomach for food and, the, and food for the stomach. But look at what he says. God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. So he's saying these, these um, adages, these catchphrases that they've been using have been rationalizations to compromise God's best. It's a rationalization. The stomach is made for food, food for the stomach. This is their rationalization for living outside of God's bounds. And so he's saying to them, that there is a duration, a limit to all that stuff, and then we encounter God. But it, it, before that, we want to live in such a way that we honor the Lord. And then he says, and God has, uh, let's, where was I? Sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Your physical body. He says you've taken it and you've made it by your profession of faith in Jesus, a member of his body, of the congregation, his spirit living in us. Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot, he asked? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. This is so interesting. He's already quoted this uh, very passage in Genesis 2.24 when he talked about marriage. But now he, what he's saying is, you know, sometimes people will say, well, that means we're married in the eyes of God. This is legitimate in the eyes of God. What, he, what he's really saying, though, is that you create a uh, situation, a reality for yourself in casualness, in intimate relationships that is impossible to undo and therefore ought to be approached with the utmost of sanctity and uh, care and understanding God's actual purpose for our intimacy and for our lives connected to other people with who we might be intimate. So he says, Or do you not know that he who is joined to Harlot's one body with her, for the two will be one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him? Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know, we've seen that phrase before, right? Lots and lots. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God and you are not your own? Now you may remember that we saw that phrase previous to now. He says, you, you're the temple of the Holy Spirit. But that time, you, you know, it was second person plural. You remember that? Because we saw it, and if you were here or have been following, that the Scripture says you all collectively are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So the temple of God is you. You're the walking, witnessing representation of God. God's come to live in all of us. Every one of us that the Spirit of God has come to live inside of are the church. So, but here it's different. It's second person singular. That means you, 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 you. Each of us are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He lives in each of us. So now he's bringing this down into personal accountability. And your own individual life is part of the uh, larger whole. But he says, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. 
Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Bible. Thank you that uh, you touch on all of the issues and needs of our humanity. And you want us to understand and, and live out your purpose for us. And so we need your help and we pray, God, that your spirit might just make this clear and helpful to us as we try to follow you and live for you. And we thank you that your love for us is so intense and profound that you've given us a way to understand how to live in a way that will cause us to abound and cause us to um, experience the life that we've been created for. So we commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name, amen. There's a, I heard this quote before, it had been attributed to several people like um, C.S. Lewis or G.K. Chesterton. It's actually in a novel called The World, the Flesh, and Father Smith. A writer named Bruce Marshall in 1945, don't tell Frankie, but I ordered this book on Amazon earlier. Because uh, I've got a problem with ordering books on Amazon. I like to read. This book uh, was written by Bruce Marshall, 1945, The World, the Flesh, and uh, Father Smith. And in that particular book, a fictional character, a priest, says, Sex is a substitute for religion. He says this in conversation. The young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God, he said. And I've heard that saying several times, as I say, attributed to a lot of different people. But um, we could have named this message God at the brothel, you know, because that's what he gets into. He's like, what, these people are trying to find something to fill up a space in them but they're doing it in an inappropriate way. And they're living what they've learned, basically. But in Corinth, in the first century world, a person who had a debauched lifestyle was said to behave as a Corinthian. It was a uh, proverb. If you were behaving like a Corinthian, you were living a debauched lifestyle. So it was what was true about them, or to Corinthian eyes, you know, they would say that you had lowered your moral standard. They had a sort of a Mardi Gras culture, if you know what I mean. If you've been to something like Mardi Gras, you know that, or if you've ever been to New Orleans, you know, you know that there is a sort of a pattern there that if a person committed to, eventually their life would go off the rails if you lived that and that was your experience. And that was kind of the culture at Corinth. So Paul, we know, if you've read Acts, the book of Acts, he went to Corinth and he preached the gospel. And while he was there, people responded to the good news of Jesus and became followers of Christ. And he spent 18 months there instructing them and helping them to be disciples. But their pre-Christian baggage was the influence of Corinth the way that it was, the standards that people live by. So these, these folks have come into Christian community, but now they're having to unlearn some things or relearn some, some principles in discipleship, much the same way some of us might have. You know, If you came to faith in Christ as an adult or you came to faith in Christ from a family perhaps where you know, the influences were not Christian, or nominally Christian, or whatever. You know, we, we have to unlearn some things in our discipleship journey and learn God's, God's ways in place of them. And so, you know, we think about their society. Well, it's not all that different from ours, which tells us that human nature 
really doesn't change that much. I don't think. I think that the truth about people is that you could take a person from any century. Now, they'd be influenced for certain by, you know, circumstances in their own, you know, reality. But a person basically hasn't changed all that much from beginning to end. Their needs and ways and emotions and uh, those things are pretty consistent throughout history. I think very consistent throughout history. And so today we are, you know, living in a society that is characterized by promiscuity and sexual permissiveness. I mean, nobody would argue with me about that, right? You have television sets and, you know, stuff like that. So nobody would argue that that's the reality, that we live in a sexually permissive, promiscuous society currently so all i'm saying is this is relevant this is relevant it's you know it's not ever going to change but today biblical morality and ethics sound archaic and shocking to modern people when they hear what the bible says about god's purpose for human beings it sounds shocking to a person who doesn't live in that in this world who doesn't know scripture, you know, it just, it it sounds like impossible to them. But it's important to remember the starting place for everybody is the gospel. It's the gospel. It's not moralizing. You know, when we talked about this in the message last week, that uh, when the Bible talks about spiritual community, it's like, this isn't people who don't yet know Christ. If somebody had come to me in my pre-Christian life and started at this place with me, I'd have shut them down. But what my need was, was the gospel, was to understand there was hope for me where I was. That, that, but the starting place is Jesus. Because nobody has the power to live the kind of life that God purposes until Jesus comes into their story. Once Jesus comes into their story then the power to live a different kind of life is present in them. Not only is it present in them, but also in God's word, we're given instruction and help. And then in community, right? That's why we need community. It's because in brothers and sisters, in others, we experience truth and we we learn how to live this kind of life. But if you go to someone who doesn't know Jesus and you start out telling them, you need to do this differently, you need to do that differently, That's not helpful to them. What they need first is Jesus, is to understand that everybody's in the same situation, that that our sin has separated us from God. And and the Bible says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's not one righteous. This is basic, that every person is in rebellion. Every person has rejected God's best along the way. And, and the Bible says that Jesus Christ came here, the only perfect person to die for the imperfect people. And the, the, he, he, the righteous one died for the unrighteous ones. And by faith, that it's by grace through faith that a person is saved. The starting point for everybody is to surrender to Jesus. It's not moralizing. If, you know, that's, the I think, a flaw in the understanding we have sometimes. We are supposed to take the good news to people. Good news communicates hope that your life can be different, but it's in the act of surrender to Christ that then we're empowered to live the kind of life that he wants us to live. And so 
I love how the Bible says when we think about who Jesus is. It says we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. One translation says empathize. We don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weakness. He was tempted in every way as we are, except that he never sinned, the Bible says. So everything we face, he faced, but he didn't fail. He didn't sin. And the Bible says then we may uh, approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find help in our time of need. I'm glad that's the kind of person that Jesus is. He... He understands, he sympathizes, he didn't fail, but he helps sinners. He helps people like us that are in the middle of our messes. We have to remember that when we talk about difficult topics, that the starting place is the good news, it's the gospel. And it's, you know, these guidelines are are given specifically for people who have surrendered their lives to Jesus. And that's what we want for everybody. So let's look at what the text says. One thing we can learn from them is that we obey God and not contemporary catchphrases. One of the struggles that people have when they try to understand God's plan for intimacy and their relationships is that they're often influenced by proverbial stuff, a catchphrase that they hear that doesn't line up with what God says. So they they have uh, surrendered to the logic of the times, the, the, the spirit of the day, whatever it is that contemporary society has uh, said about what intimacy looks like, they go with that. And that's what had happened here. When they, these, uh, they have a catchphrase, an adage, that was being used to justify unbiblical behavior, to rationalize their lifestyle of moral looseness, And they said, well, the stomach is made for food and food for the stomach. But God, they are basically saying God wouldn't have given us these appetites if he didn't intend for us to use them. That's what they're saying. And, you know, he says it's true God designed the body for use but not for abuse. He gave you a body for use but not for abuse. And so this is a cultural mantra that they are using that is masquerading as wisdom and you see that today for example here's the most the one i see love is never wrong love is never wrong people say well i understand why people say that but that's not what god said you know sometimes people say love is never wrong well that's not what god says he says that there's a place for the expression of intimacy and For those who follow him, the only place is in committed marriage. That's it. No exceptions. That's all. So when you read the scripture, that's what God says. So, you know, we hear adages like that, but we have to remember God doesn't change. What what you hear in them is the voice of a libertine. A libertine. You know, that may not be a familiar idea to you, but it's the idea that you know, we can make, we're kind of an end to ourselves. There's no one else that we answer to. We only answer to ourselves, and, you know, whatever I feel like I can, I can do, which I guess would be true if there weren't a creator. You know, but there is a creator. And the creator, when we look at what truth is, it's not a bunch of stuff he made up. It's just the reflection of his character and being, who he is, his holiness. And so, 
there's an ethic that they are voicing, giving voice to, that will never lead to spiritual freedom. You can't be free and follow the ethic that they are expressing. So if we're following Jesus, here's what we decided to do you know, at some point. The Bible says that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. So at some point, if you're really a Christian, you laid down your right to direct your own life. And you said, the direction for life will not come from my grimy little heart. Jeremiah 17, 9, what does it say? The heart is what? Deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it, the Bible says. You know, so a lot of times people say, well, follow your heart, which is the worst advice ever, right? Because the Bible says your heart is deceitful. It's not the measure or the standard that you ought to be following. God gave you truth outside of your heart. And, and so when we understand who, you know, the Lord is, the Lord is the one who we follow. We're followers of Jesus. That's the, the description of who you are. I'm a follower of Jesus, so I get up each day, and I want to know what Jesus wants for my life. If we don't, you know, think that way, we can't really say we're followers of Christ because surrender is at the very beginning of this journey. Laying down, and then a, a continual laying down of my life every day. Jesus says, if anyone wants to come after me, he has to take up his cross daily, lay down his life, take up his cross daily, and follow me. So he, he, this is the, at the very beginning we say, I surrender. I give up on uh, my right to direct my own, my own life. And, he, and we call him Lord. You remember what he says in Matthew chapter 7, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but you don't do the things that I say? The implication is if he's Lord, we'll do the things that he, he says. That, that will be our baseline. So... Some people uh, believe that what happened here is they misunderstood Paul's teaching about grace. In in, um, Romans chapter 6, verse 1, he says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Because at one point he says, Where sin abounded, grace did abound much more. And that's a great and powerful truth. Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. But then he goes on, he says, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid, he says. Don't, no way. That's not the way it works. He, he says, you know, instead we, we learn to, to see our life as a new life. Since we have died to sin, how, do we, how should we continue in it? So that, that's the idea of what grace is. Grace is powerful and wonderful. There's no salvation apart from it. It's a gift that you didn't deserve that God gave to you. But that doesn't mean we abuse the gift of grace. That's not what a worshiper would do. And it's not to say that uh, Christian people don't struggle with sin because that, that would be an unhelpful lie. It would be alien to your own experience, I'm sure. I mean, I would say... It's alien to my experience. I struggle with sin in the flesh. I struggle with temptation. And I'm grateful that grace is the answer, not my performance. Not some list of things I check off. On the other hand, because I'm a worshiper, I don't want to abuse the grace of God. I don't want to trample the blood of Christ underfoot and treat it as, a, as something other than what it is, which is a precious thing. 
So these, you know, that's the kind of seriousness that we're, you know, we're thinking through. So the danger in following truth mimicking, but ultimately lawless adages is that is what he says. You could be brought under the power. He says, food for the stomach, food, uh, stomach for, all things are permissible for me. I can do whatever because I'm under grace. He says, true, but out here somewhere, you don't want your decisions to put you in a place of bondage. You don't want to wake up one day and go, okay, I did all these reckless things. I understood grace to give me permission to do, but now I'm stuck. I'm not where I want to be in my, in my life. And, re, and misuse of relationships is really the... Uh, point of this so the danger that's the danger we could end up someplace that God never intended for us to be not experiencing his freedom and his his liberty Uh, distinction and privileges that's unique to humans is that God created us in his image he tattooed his likeness on you not your cat you know we buy cat food for our cat I mean, sometimes it feels like he owns us and he's the higher, you know, being in. But, but he's not. He can't think complex thoughts. I don't know what he does think about. Like sleeping 20 hours a day or something, I guess. But you, God made unique. You, God made complicated. We're made in his image, which, you know, obviously doesn't mean that we physically resemble God. It means that we're made with God as a person. He gave us the attributes of personality. He gave us the ability to reason and deduce and, and to build. And, you know, we think about all the, the ways that civilization, it does advance, right? I mean, aren't you glad for air conditioning and central heat and air and stuff like that? Civilization advances. God made us complex and able to problem solve and, he gave us this incredible capacity which can go wrong if, if you know, we abuse that. So he also gives us boundaries, and that's what all this is really about, is like understanding boundaries that are helpful for us. So when people are contending for their right to define reality, they inch further and further from God. That's what happens. God made us with this incredible capacity. But when a person insists on defining reality their own way, they're just stepping incrementally further and further away from God's orbit. And that's the idea, is that, you know, be sure that who you listen to is someone you should be listening to. And in their case, Paul has to correct them and say, look, what you're saying sounds right, but it's nothing more than a rationalization to follow your flesh. But also we obey God because our bodies are eternal. Look at the uh, verse 14 here. It says, and God both raised up the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Your body is eternal. It's eternal. It may go to ashes one day. You know, if Christ doesn't return before you die, you you know, it will go to ashes given enough time. But the Bible says that just as Christ was raised from the dead, you will be raised bodily. There is no other way to understand resurrection. It, it means reanimation 
of a dead body. That's all it means. Anastasis. The idea that this, uh, whatever the condition of that body is, one day God is going to reanimate it supernaturally. So your body has a purpose that transcends time. That's, that's what he's trying to help you think about. Your body is given to you by God, but it transcends your limited life on earth. It has an eternal purpose. And I thought about, you know, how the Bible says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Fearfully and wonderfully made in the book of uh, Psalm, chapter 139. We, we think about what a person is, a fusion of flesh chemicals you are a fusion of flesh and chemicals you have like your brain you know if you've studied much about what the brain is like it's like sometimes the best thing in the world you can do is go take a walk just to change your perspective why because God made your body so that if you exercise it releases dopamine and makes you feel good chemicals in your body that God made and put put in there you're fearfully and wonderfully made the Bible says that we're unbelievably complex. I mean, that's why we pay doctors to go to school for eight years and stuff like that. Is because they study the miracle that God made in a person and can help analyze and heal, help. You know, not always perfectly, but the we think about what we are: fusion of flesh, chemicals, and something immaterial, a soul. A mind, a soul that God made. He made us uniquely this way. And uh, once we're born, we are eternal, immortal. We experience reality in a tactile, spiritual way, right? We experience life in a physical body as a spiritual person. And if we're Christians, we're saved people in unsaved bodies, is how somebody else put it. Our citizenship is in heaven, from which we wait for our redemption. But I'm already a citizen of heaven. I'm a saved person in this broken down (laughs) shell thing that keeps processing life. And it's just a weird kind of dynamic, how God made people And what answers to his purpose. So once we're born, we're immortal. We're we're eternal, the Bible says. C.S. Lewis did say this. He says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors, he says, or everlasting splendors. But you don't know any ordinary people. You only know immortal people. You only know people who will live somewhere forever, the Bible says. And I I like the way that it's expressed there. But God made you for splendor. Yet what he purposed may be easily derailed by our freedom with its opportunity to impulsiveness and compulsiveness. Anybody ever notice any impulsiveness in your life? Anybody ever notice any compulsiveness in your life? Do you own a cell phone? Okay, of course we do. You, you know, we're, 
our, our lives have been created by God with an intent, but involved in it for all of us is this struggle for discipline, for order. What does that really mean? Discipleship and obedience. For us, that's what it means, obedience. A person who always acts on their impulses will invariably become enslaved. Exercising our freedom carelessly, we invariably lose it. All things are permissible for me. Do you want to be a free person? Because the exercise in your will compulsively without boundaries or thought or accountability, what happens out here is that you lost your freedom. You ended up enslaved. So we obey God. Our bodies are eternal, and they, and they have this incredible capacity. We obey God rather than making Him party to immor- immorality. Thirdly, we obey God rather than making Him party to immorality. This is the God in the brothel idea. And what he asked uh, them in this passage, should I take the members of Christ, because now you're a member of Christ, and make it part of a harlot, a prostitute? That's the word. Of course, that was an issue in their society, or he wouldn't be talking about it. And as we say, we live in a culture that, you know, is, is very similar in its own way. So... Of course, in some uh, sense, God is everywhere. So God would be in the brothel because he brings grace wherever God is. He's working out his purposes to redeem and reconcile. But this is clearly a a rebuke. A rebuke. No, is the idea. No, certainly not. So he, he, he says, whatever we do, if we're really Christians, we bring God into it. Romans 8, 9 says uh, that the Spirit of God lives in you unless you don't belong to Him. If you belong to Him, the Spirit of God lives in you. That's what makes you a Christian, is the Spirit of God's presence. So, he, he says to, you know, to these people and to us, the Bible does, whatever you do, you bring God into it. The Greek word for prostitute is an interesting word. In uh, Greek... They're, the letters, you, they can transliterate. I've probably shared this before, how the, you know, in the Greek, my big fat Greek wedding, it says, give me a word, any word, I'll tell you how the root of that word is Greek. You know, if you like English and study it very much, you know words have origin. They didn't just appear from nowhere. This word is P-O-R-N-E. That's the word for a prostitute here. Porn. A. But... That's the word. It's the idea of immorality. The internet has made it possible for many people to fall into the mental trap of pornography. You know, we think, what's the application to us from this? Well, here's a very plain one, since that word basically appears in the Greek text, is that it's very easy for anybody to fall into the habit of viewing pornography in our day. Anybody. In fact, nothing is easier, I would say. It's easily obtainable, pervasive, progressively addictive, harder to avoid than it is to access in, in these days, and never discussed at church. Even though it's safe to assume based on 
data that many people who attend church regularly viewed or have viewed pornography or may, may have some way that they're stuck in that. And the fact that it's never discussed causes people to wonder about the ethics of it. How does it fit in? Well, clearly it doesn't. You know, it doesn't fit in. But also, how to be free. How to get free. So if we never talk about it, then nobody's helped. And I think this very obvious from this passage that you should talk about it. Shame creates a closed loop of hopelessness for people. And they don't know how to move forward. I read a story a couple years ago, heartbreaking, of a professor at New Orleans Baptist Theological College who committed suicide after being outed. You may remember this story in the news in the 2015 Ashley Madison website hack. I don't know if people remember that or not. Basically, uh, someone broke into this website called Ashley Madison and found the names of people who had prescribed to this, uh, subscribed to this site, and this professor was uh, being outed, and he took his own life because he didn't know what to do other than to, you know, experience the shame and the brokenness of that situation, apparently without any sense that redemption was a possibility in the circumstances that he found himself in. So think about that. In a culture literally saturated with pitfalls, the church ought to be a, a, an oasis of grace. It ought to be easy for somebody in that guy's circumstances to understand how he could move forward and be forgiven and be restored and to be helped. But the only thing that he felt in his circumstances were crippling despair to the point that he took his own life. And he was loved in his family. He left a note describing what was going on. And in the aftermath of that, his family spoke out just because they wanted other people to be helped. So when I read this passage, we think, well, there's no real application. You know, we're not going to be going to prostitutes and stuff like that. But when you get underneath the uh, surface here, what you can see is that probably there are many, many people stuck in their circumstances and who need to hear God's best for them and to understand the path, uh, path forward. Fanny Crosby wrote a hymn, uh, many, many, many hymns. But this one says, Rescue the perishing. Care for the dying. Jesus is merciful. Jesus will save. And to me, that's the... I hope every time anybody ever hears me you know, proclaim Scripture, they go away with the, that reality ringing in their ears that there is hope. That there is hope. That that's God's heart. It's redemptive, it's good. But the scripture reinforces here that when we talk about casual sex, there's no such thing. Sex outside of God's plan cheapens, objectifies, idolizes other people. It puts them at the center of the world sometimes. And the only way to properly understand another person is through the filter of the worship of God. If you don't understand people through the filter of the worship of God, then we'll use people, we'll cheapen them, 
will objectify other human beings instead of blessing them. If God isn't first, we'll miss his high ideal for relationships. So that's what is underneath and behind all this is the idea, are we worshipers? Is that where we are? If we don't approach life with God at the center, we'll put the weight of God's role on some person who could not possibly bear that. That's what I did before I became a follower of Christ. Is like I was looking for a relationship that you know would be the answer, but there's only one relationship that's the answer. That is God in Christ, living in you. There is no other relationship that's the answer. If you try to make some other human being carry the weight of responsibility for being God to you, that can never succeed. So that's the, you know, one of the things I think that's in, inside this when you start peeling the layers back. Nobody's equal to that. Only God. And we worship, when we worship God, He gives us this shift in our perspective. Fourthly, we obey God so that we don't create a pit of our own making. He says there, flee, run away from sexual immorality. Every sin a man does is outside his body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Joseph, the son of Jacob, comes to mind. You remember Joseph who got sold into slavery, was a a steward in the household of uh, Potiphar, the uh, chief of the security forces for Pharaoh, essentially, is who he was. And while he's there, Potiphar's wife tries, offers to uh, seduce him. And he says, no, thank you, you know, because I don't want to destroy my life and my witness and everything. And he saw it as a sin against God. But sexual sin is unavoidably immersive. In another place, the Bible says, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1. The idea is that we'll have created a nearly inescapable inner turmoil. Wars against the soul, it says. There are things that we can, you know, have and practice that on the inside, it's a shadow life. And, there, and there's this darkness. And it, it's, it puts us in this struggle against the best self that God, you know, intends and the person that he, he wants us to be. So, God's given us a, a pattern for relationships, and that's what we see in this passage. The only escape from that kind of turmoil is repentance and work in your discipleship pathway. You know, I think sometimes we don't think about some of these issues. What was this stuff for them? Why is he talking about it? Because just like we said in the beginning, they were steeped in this. It was everywhere around them, and it had seeped into them. And now he's saying, okay, that's not the life anymore. That's your pre-Christian life, or it's the cultural life, but it's not your life. So also, lastly, in this passage, we obey God because of the incredible cost of our redemption. Because he ends saying that. You, he says, don't you know your body is a temple? of the Holy Spirit who's in you, who you have from God, you're not your own. For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and your, and your spirit, which is, the, is our God. So the price of our salvation, of course, is Christ's precious blood. 
his sacrifice. We saw this same line of question uh, before, but thinking about the collective body. But he says, you individually belong to God. And he decides the parameters of our relationship with him. We're no longer our own. We made that decision. But we keep making it, right? Long ago, or however long ago it was for you, you made a decision that you belong to Jesus, not to yourself anymore. So you laid aside your right to your life. That's what we did. So he purchased us and gave himself for us so that we could experience his forgiveness and his life. And that, again, does not need to be cheapened in our life as easy it is, as it is to do because of what we are. Our attentiveness to his ways testifies to God's reality and enables others to experience God through us. So we want to be the best at that that we can be. And that happens through continual surrender and forgiveness and repentance and honesty and walking in the light. I love the scripture that says if we walk in the light, As he is in the light, the blood of Jesus cleanses us from our sins. And what? We have fellowship with one another. Because there's nothing that we're hiding or lying about. It's it's there and real. So that's such a great truth. that That Jesus Christ cleanses. Not cleansed once long ago, but cleanses. And he wants our lives to be light. You are what? The light of the world, the Bible says. I'm the light of the world. That's what God wants. Light through your life, through my life. So where do we get our ideas about the nature of human life? Our culture is shoveling ideas at us faster than we can think. And if we don't have some baseline for understanding what God says, it will uh, be easy for us to be led astray and others to be led astray through us. We hear people talk about deconstructing their faith these days. I'd speculate that one of the triggers for people is trying to reconcile what they understand about human sexuality based on what they have learned from Scripture compared to what they actually are seeing lived out in the lives of people around them. So sometimes I think that a big trigger for young adults particularly It's like there's this battle to understand the actual humans and the sexual ethic they have and whether or not they can agree with it. And because, you know, it's difficult, we start trying to tear it down and reduce it to something, but God doesn't change. So what we have to decide is, okay, from there, how do I love people that I disagree with? I disagree with you, but I I love you. My ethic isn't the same of yours, but I'm committed to my ethic, my belief. Why? Because I decided it? No, because God decided it and revealed it, and therefore I'm committed to it. We can't start like parceling out truth and setting aside the parts of it that we agree with and don't agree with, or sooner or later we're left with nothing to stand on. So... It's vital that we lead with the gospel and not condemnation because there are going to be people in the world until you die that don't agree with what this says. So we lead with the gospel. The gospel is good news. This is hard. I know. It's hard. But when we lead with the gospel, we're leading with hope. And it results in hope. 
We evangelize and trust God. We don't try to act as if we were God because we have too much of our own junk to be God to anybody. I'm not a good God, so I'm not going to try to be God to anybody, but I can offer God to everybody in the good news of Christ. We love and worship Jesus and point others to him. I remember having a conversation uh, with a guy once. I had the first time I ever went anywhere in the world, I went all the way to India. I'd never been on an airplane. Went all the way to India. And uh, this gentleman that had done a bunch of promotion for an event that these pastors had planned was a Hindu. But, so he was very open-minded about all kinds of things. But I'm, I'm not open-minded when, I, when it comes to you know, what I think is truth. And one of the local pastors summarized the conversation by saying, like, there are many keys, but only one opens the door. Because you know, this guy was so open-minded, he you know, was in favor of all kinds of faiths. But the truth is, there's only one key that opens the door. And Jesus says, I'm the door. I'm the way. I'm the truth. I'm the, I'm the life. And so we start with, with Jesus. We're going to have a time of commitment this morning, this is the opportunity for you to respond. And, you know, the appeal is to surrender, is to obey the Lord. And it may be that the starting place for you is in a relationship with him through surrender to Christ, who gave his life so that your sins could be forgiven, who was raised from the dead so that we could have the life that uh, we were intended to have. Let me pray for us, and then we'll stand and uh, sing, and if you have a need for prayer, I'd be happy to pray with you. God, thank you so much for the Bible. Thank you for how it directs our lives, and even though it puts us in situations at times that are difficult and uncomfortable, still your truth is timeless, and you're good. God, that's the fundamental truth we believe. You are good, and so we commit ourselves to you and to your goodness, and we pray that we might be... uh, Um, people who are as wise as serpents but as gentle as doves. God, help us to love people the way that you do and to be kind and compassionate to those that are erring so that they might see you and experience you through us and help us to be truthful. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.